Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast based on the paper UK-wide survey of gastroenterology and hepatology trainees in 2022. Endoscopy, workforce planning and the shape of things to come published in Frontline Gastroenterology in October 2023. My name is Dr. Vivek Guduri trainee associate editor at Frontline Gastroenterology and gastroenterology registrar at Leeds Teaching Hospital NHS Trust, Leeds, United Kingdom. I will be co-interviewing with Dr. Gio McGinty and Dr. Philip Dunn. Yes, thank you. Delighted to be joining you for this exciting podcast on gastroenterology trainees experience in 2022 and what this means for the future. My name is Dr. Gio McGinty, a trainee associate editor at Frontline Gastroenterology and a gastroenterology registrar at North Bristol Trust, Bristol, UK. Hello, I'm Dr. Philip Dunn, a trainee associate editor at Frontline Gastroenterology and a gastroenterology registrar in the west of Scotland Deanery, Glasgow, UK. We'd like to extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Emma Sornsbury and Dr. Elizabeth Ratcliffe, both senior gastroenterology trainees. Elizabeth was the ex-chair of the BSG Trainees Committee and Emma is the Severn and Peninsula representative for the BSG Trainees section and ex-secretary and are both co-authors on this paper. Dr. Sornsbury and Dr. Ratcliffe, thank you for joining us on the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast today to discuss gastroenterology training, the challenges we are facing and what this means for the future of gastroenterology and hepatology training. Thank you very much for having us. We're really grateful for the invitation to join the podcast today and also to Frontline for publishing the survey. You're very welcome. Uh, To kick off, I'd first like to congratulate you on your excellent and hugely relevant publication in Frontline Gastroenterology. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about the Gastroenterology Trainee Survey and what actually prompted you to undertake it? Thanks, Philip. It's great to be able to share our findings and discuss things a bit further on the podcast today, as we're aware that there's been quite a lot of interest in the paper. In terms of what prompted the survey, one of the main aims of the BSG Trainees Section Committee is to represent UK gastro trainees and to work towards developing their training. In order to do that, obviously, we need to hear from trainees themselves about their current training and their own views and priorities. So every two years, we undertake a formal survey to do exactly that. Some of the survey questions remain standardised in order to be able to monitor training outcomes, but each iteration also includes new specific questions too, which are tailored to training um, priorities currently. Since the last survey in 2020, the major development has been the introduction of the newly shortened four-year curriculum for gastro training, um, and that was introduced by the GMC following the Shape of Training report, and the new four-year curriculum replaces the traditional five-year curriculum. This obviously represents a massive upheaval to training, so we were really interested to assess the impact of this, not just for current trainees, but also for the future of the specialty. Thank you, Dr. Sonsbury. Specifically with regards to the uh, new four-year training programme and the new curriculum, in your survey, 90% of respondents felt that they would be able to achieve the capabilities in practice pertaining to both in and outpatient management of gastroenterology and hepatology patients. However, only 10% felt they would be ready to start as, as a consultant. How do you explain this discrepancy? 
It's a really good question. And obviously, we can't really comment for certain because it's a very individual thing for each trainee. But what I can say is I think the discrepancy really reflects the complexity of everything that's encompassed in the role of a consultant gastroenterologist. As you say, based on the subjective, anticipated competency of respondents, the current training pathway appears to provide enough experience to adequately prepare trainees to manage the average luminal and liver patient, which is reassuring to say the least, because that's very much an expected outcome. However, as we all know, many of our patients aren't average when it comes to the complexity of their conditions, be that challenging IBD requiring input from our surgical colleagues, patients with intestinal failure, reliant on TPN and all of the complications that can accompany that, or successfully managing a patient post-liver transplant. It's that more advanced decision-making which requires a specialist knowledge that really can only be developed by exposure and experience. From our results, fewer than one in three and one in five respondents anticipated that they'd be capable of managing complex problems in luminal gastroenterology and hepatology respectively by the time they CCT from this new four-year curriculum which suggests that they don't really feel as though they're going to have time to develop such knowledge required of them as a senior decision maker. We've also demonstrated that almost half of respondents wouldn't feel capable of performing diagnostic and therapeutic endoscopy that's going to be required of them as a consultant, which is pretty striking given that they'll be contributing to an on-call bleed rotor from the outset and you know, could potentially be called in to deal with the out-of-hours variceal bleeds in their first week as a consultant. We didn't specifically cover things like the non-technical aspects of consultancy, be that sort of leadership or organisational skills, but maybe that plays into it as well. I think it's also important to recognise, though, that our results reflect subjective feedback from respondents. And I suppose in the same way that very few sort of IMTs are ever professing themselves as being ready to step up and be the med reg on call, naturally, gastrochonies might have a degree of imposter syndrome when considering themselves as future consultants, which inevitably would have um, affected their response to the survey question. Nevertheless, I think our results speak for themselves when they sort of starkly highlight that there are significant gaps in respondents' anticipated proficiency in their own specialty. And that's definitely a concern. Thank you, Dr. Salisbury. The proportion of ST7 achieving partial or full certification in colonoscopy by completion of training is very low at around 25%. Does this correlate with data from JAG and what can be done to improve this? Yeah, another really excellent question and was one of the very concerning findings from this survey this time round. If you look back, and I encourage our um, listeners to go back to Frontline and look at our previous survey where the data was taken from 2020, and at that stage had shown a drop in those reporting full certification from 78% on the prior survey to that survey, down to 43% within the pandemic. And in our survey this time around, it's now 25%, which is clearly very concerning. There is some data published from the JAG database, from 20, which was published in 2019 in colorectal disease by Dr. Keith Sow et al. And that showed that 88% of trainees had reached over 300 procedures, which was the sign-off cutoff on the prior full certification. So we're clearly seeing a big change, although we take into account that the survey only shows a proportion of trainees. However, Shape of Training has given an opportunity to overhaul things and focus uh, on these aspects of training that were struggling even before um, the Shape of Training came into play. 
one of the factors that I think is going to be really helpful in terms of the shape of training reforms is mandating um, colonoscopy full certification for luminal trainees. So that means that 75% of the workforce will have to be signed off by their CCT. There's also been a reduction in the numbers needed for full certification. Um, so JAG have released new guidelines and given a new certification pathway for colonoscopy. So the numbers now needed for sign-off are 280 rather than over 300 for the full certificate. And though this is a lower number, they still obviously need to meet their key performance indicators. But I hope that there is going to be a more, um, more focus given to achieving this we know that there have been academies that have been developed across the country. There are lots of trusts now offering accelerated training, particularly for upper GI sign-off um, to early higher specialty trainees, so offering this at ST4. Um, and that will allow them to speed up the process of sign-off for upper GI endoscopy and then focus down on colonoscopy training. The concern, though, is that this may be a bit heterogeneous across the country, and it's imperative for TPDs and those delivering training to support this for all trainees and this is why we do these surveys really is that trainees can then feed back what's happening across the country and we can make sure that everybody's getting access to good quality training. Thanks very much it's really been enlightening to hear how trainees feel about training in endoscopy as a whole. What do your results show about training in upper GI bleeding as well as exposure to out of hours GI bleeding cases? And as a follow-on question, I might just ask your thoughts about the use of a formal training pathway for trainees in upper GI bleeding. Yeah, again, it's another really um, worrying area that's come out of our surveys. And in this particular survey, the respondents felt inadequately trained or felt un that they wouldn't be confident when they came to the end of their training to manage variceal bleeding, and which is something as... Um, Dr. Thornsbury rightly said they could do in their first week as a newly qualified consultant. Usefully, therapeutic upper GI endoscopy is mandated in a capability and practice. So for those who aren't familiar with it, the shape of training now rather than a tick box exercise is a global assessment of your capability and practice for certain areas. And one of the mandated ones within this is therapeutic upper GI endoscopy and colonoscopy if you're a luminal trainee. So it has to be delivered in the training programme. And again, this comes back to those who are delivering training, the TPDs have to provide opportunities and a way that trainees can get this uh, within their programme and the four-year programme. So one of the ways that this is happening is there are lots of courses now endorsed by JAG so that trainees can get access to hands-on experience with different devices and all of the modalities that are needed for upper GI bleeding. But it's a very different thing to be doing it in real life. And certainly in my region and across the country, I believe, a lot more trusts are focusing on trying to get trainees off the GIM rotor for a proportion of their later years in training to be able to double up with a consultant on a bleed rotor to get that experience. Again, this is not necessarily equitable across the country. And hence, I think both the BSG Trainees Committee, but also uh, trainees themselves need to feedback what's happening and share good examples of good practice and how this is being achieved so that others can have the same opportunity. Thank you. 
Moving on uh, from endoscopy um, to now the challenges of uh, dual training in gastroenterology and general medicine. So 70% of trainees who've completed the survey report that they are spending too much time in general medicine. Do your results suggest that GIM training negatively impacts on gastroenterology training? And again, as a follow-up question, what are the solutions uh, to help mitigate this going forward? So this is definitely a big question. And for us, one of the main themes of the survey was definitely to look into the interplay between internal medicine and gastroenterology to try and establish whether the new curriculum achieves the right balance. A key driver behind the curriculum change in the first place was to try and equip gastroenterologists of the future to be able to manage an ageing and increasingly comorbid patient population, which is obviously an important consideration. And we do acknowledge that in a curriculum which does involve dual accreditation, obviously both specialties do need to be adequately represented. However, 71.6% of our respondents, so almost three quarters, stated that internal medicine did negatively impact on their gastro training. For listeners who aren't aware, it's now mandated that gastro trainees have to attend 20 non-specialty clinics within our training time too. And as no trusts are sort of reducing trainees' acute medical take commitments, at least based on anecdotal experience of the trainee section reps and feedback from our regions, realistically, this means that trainees have to lose out on either 20 gastro clinics or endoscopy lists or admin sessions in order to achieve this. It's therefore not surprising that 80.9% of respondents felt that attending these non-specialty clinics negatively or indeed very negatively impacted on their gastro training. I think what I found interesting, though, was that fewer than 20% of respondents actually felt that attending these clinics improved their internal medicine training. So the intended reciprocal benefit doesn't appear to be being achieved. It therefore becomes a question of what form of internal medicine experience is going to be most useful for gastro trainees moving forward, as arguably spending the majority of their internal medicine time overseeing the acute medical take with sort of often quite limited consultant feedback out of hours isn't going to be the way forward either. I think in order to be able to guide solutions to this, though, it's definitely something that we need to hone in on more in our next um, survey, which is going to come out next year. When it comes to solutions, the BSG trainee section was really clear that rather than just using the survey to point out flaws in the new curriculum, we really wanted to be able to identify areas for potential improvement too and to be able to offer those solutions. We were unfortunately quite limited word count wise in terms of fully exploring that as part of the paper, but we did signpost several potential initiatives. Firstly, respondents suggested that a median of 80% training time should be ring-fenced for gastroenterology in order to achieve the sort of curriculum competencies and sufficient subspecialty exposure. Currently, it's recommended that about 75% of training time is reserved for gastro training, but as our results demonstrated, this isn't actually routinely upheld. And for 26.5% of respondents, they reported that in reality, less than half their training time was spent in gastro. For this reason, we've strongly recommended that a training time calculator is introduced, which is something the cardiologists are already using. And the idea is that this could be used in real time to prospectively collect data accurately in terms of the proportion of training time spent in gastroenterology, which is important because it could be used as a key performance indicator for the new curriculum by correlating it with the attainment of core competencies and trainee confidence. Based on further feedback, we've also recommended that internal medicine training be undertaken in blocks rather than interspersed throughout the rotor, as this would minimise sort of the interference of post on call days off with training lists and ward continuity. Um, and that's something that two thirds of respondents were keen for. 
finally, the training sections also launched an initiative to try and collate sort of best rotor practices from each of our reps regions so that trust can hear about successful examples from elsewhere and that they can model themselves on, similar to and what Dr. Radcliffe was discussing in terms of opportunity bleed practices. And that's something that's ongoing. At the end of the day, I think now we've only got four years of training to try and cover everything. The main concern of the training section committee is that there's an element of robbing Peter to pay Paul within the new curriculum and gastro training sort of detrimentally impacted by encroaching internal medicine commitments. Whilst obviously we do still need to maintain a degree of service provision internal medicine wise to sort of keep hospitals running and functioning. We hope that the new curriculum can be further adapted over the next few years in order to safeguard gastro training. That's going to be critical, not only to provide capable consultants of the future, but also to prevent UK standards from slipping behind. Thank you, Dr. Salisbury. Gastroenterology is a rapidly growing specialty with many evolving subspecialties that require focused training. What has been trainees' experience of subspecialties and how can this be improved? Yeah, this is a very important area as well. Um, I would direct our listeners to look at the paper figure two, where we have um, collated the responses of trainees' experience and exposure to certain subspecialty areas. And bearing in mind that there's a range of levels of respondents, so some will be earlier on in their training, it's very concerning to see how little exposure a lot of our trainees are getting, or or certainly the respondents have um, described. And my subspecialty interest is advanced upper GI endoscopy and I know it's not everybody's thing however it's quite shocking to see that only six percent of um, respondents had good exposure to this during their training it's not for everybody but it would be helpful for people to understand all of these subspecialty areas and this came up quite a bit when um, during my time as the BSG Trainees Committee Chair. I was involved with the trainee consultation on the Shape of Training GMC curriculum sign-off, where we took the proposals and the curriculum across the regions and presented it to trainees and received feedback on the proposals. And there were lots of concerns really about subspecialty training. The idea of Shape of Training and our training is to develop good quality general gastroenterology consultants. But because gastroenterology is so complicated and so subspecialized now, trainees really want to have exposure or to know that they're going to be able to develop a subspecialty interest and then hopefully that lead to a job within their field of interest. The other thing, however, that came up a lot was for those who are interested in pursuing a career in hepatology, making transplant experience mandated within that um, stream makes it quite difficult for those who couldn't travel or change deanery to get that experience and being mindful not to make this a gendered issue because many male trainees have families that they want don't want to move or don't want to move away from their family but this does impact in uh, a way that is concerning for equality and inclusion for those who can't move away for various reasons Uh, Further to that, a lot of trainees were concerned about the lack of pathway for hepatobiliary interest and advanced endoscopy. And this was emphasised during the consultation. And we were informed that this would be moved to a post-CCT training or or into the consultant era of your career. But we know that there's a massive workforce issue for consultants uh, and a lot of 
empty posts, which means that will this be delivered or deliverable in a post-CTT way when you've started your job as a consultant? So there were lots of concerns about this. I think what can be beneficial um, and thinking about ways to improve this is that TPDs can try to be proactive in how they design or choose where trainees go and are placed so that they can gain experience in their field of interest. And one thing that is helpful for this is that trainees create a short summary of what's at the actual on the ground available training opportunities in the hospital that they're in, share that with the TPD and also express their interest in their subspecialty interest. And then that TPD can provide a pathway within those four years that gives the exposure that that trainee needs. So 58% of your respondents felt that training in nutrition was underrepresented. Now, considering that nutrition is a hugely important aspect for all gastroenterologists, regardless of whether this is undertaken as a subspecialty or not, my question is, what do you think can be done to meet nutrition training requirements in the new curriculum? Yeah, again, a very concerning area, particularly as nutrition is absolutely vital to both luminal and hepatology trainees and isn't just a subspecialty interest. I think if I was going to design a training pathway and I was the TPD, one way that with the new shape of training uh, design would be to try to focus down on the first two years of training and make sure that all trainees get access to a hospital with a high quality nutrition service. Doesn't need to be an intestinal failure unit, just somewhere with a nutrition team, uh, an MDT and a ward round, but get that as part of their first two years of training. Because as we know, nutrition is a big focus within hepatology and also very key to um, luminal. The other thing that's also helpful is there are lots of opportunities for teaching and education. And Dr. Charlotte Rutter and her colleagues are doing online teaching seminars regarding nutrition, which have been very widely available. Um, And there are also courses that should be encouraged to all trainees going through whichever stream they decide to go down um, and study budgets should cover for these. We've heard a lot about uh, burnout during and uh, since the COVID-19 pandemic. How are the gastroenterology uh, trainees coping? And for those who are struggling, how how can they be uh, supported? So I think it's a really important consideration for all of the medical workforce at the minute, not just gastro trainees. Uh, So thanks for addressing it. Focusing in on gastro trainees, though, We know that in the 2021 Medical Workforce Unit Census of Higher Specialist Trainees, which is undertaken by the Royal College of Physicians, gastro trainees ranked fifth most at risk of burnout amongst medical specialties. And I think they had a 39% rate of moderate burnout risk. And more concerningly, it was a 12% rate of high burnout risk. Our survey didn't specifically focus on current rates of burnout because we were aware that this was being assessed by other channels at the moment. But concerns about burnout definitely entered into many aspects of people's responses. So, for example, 30.2% of respondents had chosen to go out of programme due to concerns about burnout, and 24% of respondents chose to work less than full-time for the same reason. Looking to the future, it becomes quite interesting because actually just over a third of full-time respondents are actually considering going less than full-time, and for 41.9% of them, concerns about burnout factored into this decision-making. So it's definitely still there and still a problem. 
in order to support our colleagues in our future workforce, protecting against burnout definitely needs to be a priority in all future training considerations. And I think it's pretty obvious for all of us that work-life balance is one aspect of this, which is something for that reason that we hope to cover in a lot more detail in our next survey next year um, with specific questions related to, for example, the frequency of trainees coming in on days off or staying after night shifts to attend ad hoc endoscopy training um, or staying late after rated working hours. What is nice to see, though, is that the BSG has taken burnout really seriously amongst the specialty, and they've already launched several initiatives in response to concerns, um, and that includes things like a portfolio of wellbeing resources on their website and setting up their member assistance program, which offers um, some lifestyle support, and that's all available to BSG members, as well as things like mentorship opportunities, which I think is particularly relevant to trainees in particular. Thank you. Some people have found the survey results quite shocking and sobering. An obvious question, but an important one. How has training and Gapsnit been allowed to get this bad? Yes, a very good question. I think the first thing to consider is this is a survey and a self-selected population have responded to the survey. And that can mean that the results have to be taken carefully and may not be fully representative of everybody's experience. However, there has been a worrying trend across the course of the last few surveys that we've done with the BSG Trainees Committee. And I do think it is a wake-up call. Further to that, though, this is a perfect storm of the pandemic and shape of training being introduced at a similar time. And we're early on in the experience of shape of training. So there will probably be a settling in period and all of those things that we've talked about in terms of how to improve training will take time to come into place. But we have to also acknowledge that there were issues with training before the pandemic and before shape of training came into place. So there absolutely has to be a sea change and a focus on delivering high quality training. What are the barriers to that? Well, we know that there's a workforce issue, as I've already mentioned, the consultants are struggling with their own workforce issues. Healthcare is becoming much more complicated and gastroenterology is no different or even maybe worse than lots of other specialties in terms of its complexity. So the and the waiting list impact on the, the ability to deliver training but we need to be proactive about this and take action to make a difference to training now to make sure that the consultants of the future aren't burnt out, as um, Dr. Sauna Breeze just talk, talked about, and are ready to deliver the care that they need to. So how do we address that? Well, we've covered some ideas within the paper and we're continuing as the BSU Trainees Committee, as we mentioned before, to bring in ideas of good practice from around around the country to share practice and encourage any trainees that know something that's working in their region, bring it to your BSG trainee rep and we can try to improve it for everybody around the country. But it is going to be a challenge. I'm optimistic that Shape of Training has given an opportunity to change things, focus people, particularly around things like endoscopy and academies, but there is a lot of work to do. Um, and we're absolutely committed from the BSG side of things to support trainees. And that's why we keep doing these surveys to highlight these issues. That was really excellent. Uh, thank you both so much for elaborating on these important aspects of the survey. Perhaps one final question. 
What struck you most about the results of the survey? I think in terms of the results of the survey itself, for me, it really circles back quite nicely, actually, to the statistic that we discussed at the beginning, that only 10% of respondents stated that they would be ready to be a consultant by the end of the new four-year curriculum. I think that pretty unequivocally demonstrates that further development of the curriculum is needed. What's also struck me about the survey results, though, is kind of the response that we've had from our peers and the gastro consultant body, as well as all the discussions and debate that have been going on in social media. It's great to see that the papers provided both objective and subjective evidence to kind of open up that conversation about the state of our specialty training. And as Dr. Ratcliffe sort of just really nicely summarised there, we really hope that this will result in sort of necessary change as things even out over the next few years. At our BSG training section strategy meeting, which happened last month, we were really grateful to be joined by professors Andy Veach and Colin Rees as well, so the BSG president and president-elect, because they were really keen to discuss the results of the survey with us and sort of hear our views and talk that through further. And we really hope to continue working with the BSG and the Joint Royal Colleges of Physicians Training Board's Specialist Advisory Committee as these discussions continue. Thank you, Dr. Sonsbury, Dr. Ratcliffe, for your time today and giving some important context to the trainee survey. Many points of great interest to our listeners, whether this be trainees or trainers. Many congratulations again on your publication, UK-wide Survey of Gastroenterology and Hepatology Trainees in 2022, Endoscopy, Workforce Planning and the Shape of Things to Come. I think it's fair to say we all have lots to consider moving forwards. And lastly, to our listeners, we hope you enjoyed this podcast and look forward to joining us again in the future. Thank you.